Hey, Clay Travis, I know you're listening to this because you have an enormous ego. And by now, someone has told you today's guest is a guy who sliced and diced you in a piece for the Bulwark last week. And as we both know, you can't resist the seductive sound of people talking about you. You won't admit it. You'll pretend it's not true. But I know you're listening. So here's what I want to say. You're a talented writer. And your football takes are oftentimes fascinating. But you've sold out. You see there's money to be made in being the sports Trump guy. So now you're the sports Trump guy, spouting off bullshit, giving medical advice that you're utterly unqualified to give, mocking people in ugly ways. And you don't have to do this. You're talented enough. You're smart enough. You know right from wrong. So thanks for listening to Two Riders Sling and Yang. Now cut the shit and be a fucking professional. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Tim Miller, the former Jeb Bush for President communications director, who now writes for The Bulwark and recently wrote a blisteringly brilliant takedown of Clay Travis, professional circus dancer. This is episode number 151. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks. All right, Tim, thank you so much for doing this. I guess I'm going to start by asking before we get into anything, how are you handling life in America as we speak? Oh, you know, I am, um, I'm one of those extroverts who like occasionally pretends to be an introvert. Um, and, uh, this has definitely, uh, brought a lot of clarity to my extroversion because I'm, I'm, uh, cooped up and going a little crazy and, you know, wanting the, company of others. But um, with that said, everything else is, you know, fine. Uh, you know, uh, it's hard to complain given the uh, fact that a lot of people are going through a lot tougher stuff than we are right now. Well, I feel like you, um, I feel like any <laughs> frustration, anger, angst, anything you might have was sort of let loose a few days ago when you wrote a piece for the board <laughs> that I could not have loved anymore called The Ballad of Clay Travis. Came out April 10th. I'm just going to read your lead real quick. You wrote, uh, last month, Clay Travis's podcast had the most listeners since its inception. This is noteworthy since Travis is a sports journalist and his podcast is ostensibly a show about sports. And there haven't been any sports in America since March 11th. How did Travis build his audience at a time when the total podcast downloads nationally are down? Like many other businesses, Travis has had to reorient its product offering. For instance, you may have seen that most restaurants switch their focus to takeout and delivery. And that movie studios have abandoned the theatrical release and sent films straight to video on demand. It's business school 101. When you've been disrupted, you find other pathways to viability. Clay Travis decided that in the absence of sports, he could find a market niche by offering pseudoscientific rants about how the media was overhyping coronavirus. He told listeners that the disease would only kill, quote, a few hundred people, and that he doesn't, quote, believe it's going to impact hardly any of us at all. And it turns out, however off base this was as a moral or intellectual matter, it was an excellent business decision. Travis's anti-media screeds found an audience of listeners looking to both have their political priors validated and an enemy they were comfortable hating, which is how this unlikely sportscaster found himself as one of the most prominent voices lecturing the media over their anti-Trump fear porn and telling Americans to just chill out when it comes to COVID-19. Um, why did you decide to write this and why now? You know, it's been tough. So I, I was a big fan of Clay, as I get into in the article, um, when he was writing about 
uh, SEC football. Uh, we both went to GW and were sports fans. And I, uh, you know, GW doesn't have a football team. Uh, and so I, uh, my best friend was down at LSU and his dad played for LSU. And so I would go down every year and we'd get our high school buddies together and, uh, watch a football game. And, uh, that was, and so I, I sort of gained this passion for SEC football at the time. And then Clay wrote this book called Dixieland Delight, which was actually really quite a wonderful book about, you know, yeah, his year. Tra- yeah. His year traveling around all these SEC campuses. So I became a big fan of his. I, I felt like we had a connection because I knew I didn't actually know him at GW, but uh, he was there a little bit before me, and we both wrote on the school's uh, message board uh, for basketball, GWHoops.com. Um, and uh, so I felt like I knew him. I was happy for his success, and uh, I asked him, actually, um, when I was uh, working for Jeb Bush 2016, I asked him if he'd have Jeb on the podcast, and he did, and, and we've texted a little bit. So, uh, you know, I've been following this guy for a while, and, and slowly about over the last four or five years, uh, like, I've become ex- increasingly agitated by him and frustrated. And, and, you know, a number of times I've thought about, you know, whether I should engage him or, you know, see if I, you know, uh, you know, write something that's critical of him, whether that he was attacking trans folks or, you know, acting like police violence isn't that big of a deal or, you know, calling LeBron James a bitch or, you know, whatever it was, you know, he, his whole brand changed from this like kind of very interesting gambling focused, fan focused SEC football brand to you know, one that is anti-PC hot takes and, uh, you know, things of this nature. And so I, I got increasingly agitated by it. I've thought about it a number of times. Uh, as the coronavirus stuff started to happen, I, he, uh, my blood pressure was rising every time he'd get retweeted into my feed. And finally, after a couple of weeks, I was just like, I, I feel like I have a unique perspective on this and I need to write about it because somebody has to. You have a, a long career working in Republican campaigns. You worked on the presidential campaign of Jeb Bush, John Huntsman, yep. John McCain. You worked for the uh, RNC. You were a co-founder of a PAC, America Rising. It was a conservative opposition research group. Uh, you've been very vocal against Donald Trump. Yep. And here's what I, I always wonder. When you see people like Clay Travis, or we could say, we can go across the spectrum here, Diamond and Silk, or Sean Hannity, or Tommy Lahren, do you assume these people believe what they're saying or do you more likely think they see an opening to get attention? This is a good question. And part of the reason why the clay thing upsets me so much, because some of your listeners might be familiar with this like weird online Twitter personality named Bill Mitchell, who like is a just an insane oh, yeah. Trump supporter. Right. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me to get upset at Bill Mitchell. Right. I like this is just an insane person who, you know, has, you know, lost, you know, has become untethered with reality. I, I actually, even though I find their uh, slice of what they think conservatism is and uh, to be rep- repellent and why I sort of have rebelled against the party in the Trump era. It's hard for me to get actually mad at like the uh, Steve Bannon Stephen Miller people. I, I get mad at their actions about, you know, particularly the anti-immigrant stuff. But, I, but my rage level for them is a little bit less than for people who are enabling their evil actions and who know better. Right. And, and that's Clay. And so, you know, when you look at Clay, um, this is somebody that voted for Obama twice. When we were at GW, he interned on the Hill for a Democrat. I think he interned for Al Gore, you know. People change. I've, I, my attitudes towards the Republican Party have changed, so nobody knows that more than me. But to go from an Obama, from an Obama voter to a 
MAGA hat wearing Donald Trump defender who is, you know, offended by taking down Confederate statues. That's a that's pretty that's pretty far jump. I don't know too many. I don't have any other pals at GW who, you know, went from being for Obama <laughs> to being Trumpers. You know, like that, that's you know, it's not something that you'd really anticipate. It's not Trump's base. You know, our uh, my fellow GW grads were not Trump's base. <laughs> so, you know, it's hard to know what's in everybody's heart and what's in everybody's head. I think that there is a big percentage of people, you know, in this business, uh, Hannity, you know, at the top of the list who who know what they're doing and are just, you know, giving service to the audience and just giving service to however they can make the most money. And I think that had Jeb been the president, Sean Hannity would have been a Jeb Bush fanboy, right? Uh, it's just that's what Hannity was going to do, no matter what happened with the party. I mean, Hannity literally was for immigration reform when after Mitt lost, when every, when the, you know, big thing in Republican politics was the reason why we lost is because, you know, we didn't get enough votes among Hispanic and Latino people. Right. So uh, Hannity doesn't, doesn't give a shit. Clay, you know, this is a guy who was a Democrat who has an SEC fan base. And I was there at the LSU championship game in January uh, when Trump came out, everybody around me was cheering. You know, there were a handful right. of booze. There were, you know, there was a couple of guys uh, in front of us who were related to one of the players, you know, who were just trying to stay quiet because they were a little bit concerned about an impending race war in the stands here as uh, as Trump came out. And there were, you know, a lot of very intense cheers and a handful of intense booze. But the fan base for these SEC football teams are Trump fans. And ESPN isn't serving them. Sports Illustrated isn't serving them. The other big sports sites aren't serving them. And, and that is the, the niche that Clay thought he could fill. And, and for me, that is far more upsetting than just earnest but wrong. I'm sitting here in my house. I'm not leaving. If I go to the supermarket, I'm wearing a mask. I'm following everything to yep. a T. I want to keep other people healthy. It's not just about me. It's about other people. And I mean, you wrote very well. Following that episode, Travis realized he had hit on viral gold. And thus he began his career as an armchair epidemiologist and immunologist, uh, saying on his podcast that, quote, I believe I'm incredibly well informed about the coronavirus and tweeting about how similar COVID-19 was to other diseases, how low its death rate is and how it's less contagious than the flu. You would think people would not take their cues from, a, I mean, it's no different than me offering advice on how to be safe during COVID-19, which I would never do because I'm a fucking sports writer and that would be insane. Why are people listening to people like him, to like Dr. Drew, uh, Hannity? I don't get it. I actually don't get the conservative audience who are listening yeah. to people like Trey Travis. You've worked in that world much more than I have. How do you explain it? I get it. Um, uh, it's a confluence of two things. The main thing is there is an animating element of the conservative base and of Donald Trump's base in particular that is motivated more by this is political term, but negative partisanship. But in, in the just real terms, it's they're motivated by grievances against the other guys. They feel like the Democrats and the liberals and people who live in big cities are completely ascendant in the culture. They don't see people like them on TV. They don't see people like them in the movies anymore. You know, what they see is an increasingly woke media. What they see is, you know, increasingly diverse, you know, movies, TV, culture. And they think that, you know, these in these sort of elite pockets at universities and in, in the government in Hollywood are hostile to them and they're out to get them. 
And so when they have, you know, these sort of Harvard eggheads telling them that they've got to stay inside, that they can't go to sporting events, they can't go to church, they can't go to, you know, whatever, you know, the bowling league, whatever it is, they just instinctually want to rebel against that, instinctually want to push against it, that these know-it-alls in New York and D.C. and Los Angeles are always wrong, always telling them what to do, and they don't want to listen to it. And so when it comes to a virus like this, you know, one that is disproportionately causing harm in New York, in New Jersey, uh, in big cities, they basically you know, say this is not, you know, this isn't about us, right? This is about the Chinese. This is about the Europeans. This is about the cosmopolitans. And this isn't about us. And I don't want to be told what to do. And so when somebody like Clay goes on the radio and says, Hey, all these smarty pants in, in the media are telling you that you got to hide indoors. Uh-uh. Don't be a pussy. Don't hide indoors. We can go to sporting events. You know, just be smart. We're smarter than them. We can do what we want. That appeals to them. And so, you know, I think that the great uh, revelation of Trump's success in the 2016 primary is a lot of people in Republic thought that the Republican base wanted this pure ideological conservatism. That's what Ted Cruz was offering them. You know, tax cuts, pro-life, pro-gun, you know, whatever the issue is. Donald Trump was, was not offering them that. He was offering them that he's going to own the libs. He's going to own the elites. He's going to embarrass them. He's going to win and he's going to be mean about it. And that's what appealed to people. And so, you know, the parallel between that and, you know, sort of COVID denialism is a pretty, it's not a totally concentric circle, but there's a huge overlap. Did you hear from Clay since the story came out? No. Um, he sent a couple tweets. Um, he didn't want to engage in it, right? I mean, he, and his tweets didn't engage on the, on the subject matter. I and mean, he sent one, you know, something basically like, he he admitted that he was wrong about one thing that he shouldn't have believed the Chinese or whatever. Um, but besides that, he's been the most rational guy and that the author of the piece, me, is a rabid anti-Trumper. And the only reason I'm doing this is because, you know, I hate Donald Trump. And, you know, Clay Travis is the only media person who's being fair to Donald Trump. And so, you know, the article is invalid because, you know, I'm blinded by my Trump derangement syndrome or whatever it is. So that's what he tweeted. And I, I, I replied to him, which is like this response just verifies the whole thesis of the article, which is yeah. that you've now decided that the most important thing to you is fan service to, uh, you know, a, a sports fan that is a Donald, that is Donald Trump's fan, that there's a market for that and that you want to make this argument about Donald Trump when it's not about Donald Trump. It's about, you know, th- how you are endangering people by, by telling them that this was not anything to worry about. Um, so no, he, uh, he did, he did, uh, uh, we, we have messaged, like I said in the article, I mean, we used to message, I don't know, not all the time. It's like we're friends, but we'd message a fair amount when something happened in politics or sports that was relevant to one of us. So I put that in the article just so people would know. And, you know, then he, he did say that the only time we'd actually message is when I told him how terrible Donald Trump was or something. I don't know, some bullshit that just wasn't true. But it, it's, you know, that's fine. It makes sense that that is what he's going to do. Yeah, you tweeted out about an hour ago. It's wild that I tucked one little barb at Barstool in the middle of a 3,000 word story. <laughs> And now my mentions are inundated with snowflake stoolies tattling on me. What has it been like and how have you sort of dealt with it? 
I, I've taken a ton of heat too. I mean, I, I always thought when I joined Jeb, uh, I was openly gay spokesman for Jeb. And so when I joined his campaign, the kind of gay left uh, got, was really upset online and, and was, you know, sending a lot of really nasty things to me. And so, so for a while, I was like, these are the meanest people on the internet, um, actually. <laughs> but uh, I found out very quickly that that was wrong when I was a Republican that went against Donald Trump. And it was Donald Trump's stance were the meanest people uh, on the internet. And uh, I've, I've also had a run in with the with the Sanders folks who, who also have a lot of pretty mean people on the Internet, too. So <laughs> I, I'm used to it. I, I swear I did not want to write. This. Like I, I was hoping somebody else did. I had it in the can for about a week and I sat on it for two days because I was like, I just, you know, there's a lot going on. And I, I really just didn't want to have to deal with the uh, hassle um, that I, I knew was going to come. But um uh, after 48 hours, I forget, Clay said something that just riled me up again. And, and I just told I just told the editor, I was like, just go ahead and publish it. I don't know what, what we're waiting for. Just, just screw it. Uh, and so anyway, it hasn't been that bad. Uh, you know, I mean, whatever. People make fun of me. Uh, I can take that. But a lot of compliments. I mean, uh, what I did not realize is there are a lot of people that felt like me. I mean, it did strike a chord, I think, with a, a certain type of 30-something you know, sports fan who is not, mm-hmm. you know, who has not, you know, gone full MAGA, uh, because they all felt the same way. They all liked Clay and, and, you know, liked Outkick and, you know, have like increasingly been grossed out by it. And, um, you know, I, I think that pretty much every, you know, moderate soft boy in Nashville or Memphis has DM'd me in the last 48 hours saying, thank God this, that somebody you know, called out this jerk. So I don't know. I guess he's ruffled some feathers in, in uh, local, uh, locally, but, um, no, it's, it's been fine, man. And, uh, I, I was really just teasing the stoolies. I, I, I do think it's funny. I, I, I had an aside in the article that was basically just, you know, saying that Clay has said himself, you know, when he asked me earlier, is Clay, Earnest or is he motivated by profit? He said himself that he, he, this is a market opportunity. He sees this as a market opportunity that ESPN isn't serving the conservative sports fan. And, and so I wrote an article that, you know, Clay has said this and he saw the fact that Barstool, which is a terrible product besides of, you know, I think full of mouth breathers or something like that. Besides, besides pardon my take, which is a good product, but the rest of those guys are, are horrible is worth 163 million. And, and he saw an opportunity. So that aside, I guess, got posted on some barstool thing. And all these guys were like tweeting it at Prez or whatever his name is. Like, go dunk on this, on this liberal snow, you know, whatever. It's just, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. You know what I actually consider the tragedy is way too strong of a word, but I'll use it for fun. The tragedy yeah. of guys like Clay Travis. I, I group a bunch of guys in this uh, list. Travis, Jason Whitlock, Skip Bayless, yeah. Stephen A. Smith. They're all talented. People kill me for Clay Travis can write. Jason Whitlock yeah. can really write. Skip Bayless was a great columnist. Stephen A. Smith was a freaking dogged reporter. And at some point, they all sort of decide, I'm going to go for the Bucks. I'm going to take the easy route. And I'm going to be as loud as possible. And I'm just going to rope in all these people. And I'm going to get rich. And I'm not going to have much integrity doing it. It actually just eats me up as a guy who like really loves journalism and loves reporting and loves digging. The route these people take. It's given me respect for people that, that are reflective about it because I went through this. Like, look, I, I can see it. I mean, you said in my bio, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome on writing. I've become, I've started writing the last couple of years, um, after I, I left politics because I, I didn't have a place in the party, but my background was really in kind of opposition research, which is all about creating outrage, right? I mean, the whole point of opposition research on a political campaign is I'm going to try to find something that makes the other guy look bad and 
make people mad at him. And I, I really just, you know, after Trump's ascendance had this self-reflection about whether this is a net positive for society. Like if, if somebody like this, somebody like Donald Trump, who can just completely blow all the doors off all the norms of fake outrage and, you know, uh, political discourse, uh, can become the president. I, is what I'm doing actually something I can feel good about? And, and I, I just kind of decided in the end it wasn't anymore. And, um, I, I think that, you know, the stakes are maybe a little bit lower in sports writings, but as you can see, I think with Travis, not always, right? I mean, like, and with Barstool, and I think that it, it infects the mindset of, of people who are listening to it. And it changes the way they kind of think about the world and it makes it more nihilist, right? Like everything's about who can I piss off the most? Everything's about how I can get the most attention, how I can get the most money. And that nihilism like infects the way that they view things that do have more where the stakes are a little bit greater than they are necessarily, you know, with sports. And so I, I'm totally with you. And it's the same. And, and that's true of Whitlock. And, you know, I, I'm fond of sports guys. I don't guys like Will Leitch, Leitch who, you know, was yeah. that dead spin and, you know, sort of said, I don't I don't know that the click model is for me anymore. And, and the stuff that he writes is so interesting and so mm -hmm. vulnerable and raw. And, and like the contrast between that and, you know, Stephen and, and Whitlock is, is just like so is stark. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who seems to be handling having to stay home for the next 17 years quite well. I bake, I watch reality TV, and I comment angrily on TikTok. So how do you make money? Did you know? Every day throughout the pandemic, I wear something exciting from Five with You Sports, the throwback apparel company that's so cool all my friends are begging for Jacksonville Bulls sweatshirts. Ah, oh, fuck. Here's your 10 bucks. Thank you. Uh, you wrote a piece two days before um, your piece on Clay Travis. Bernie Sanders dropped out because his campaign believed its own BS. First of all, you're a really good writer, Tim. Like, don't uh, don't don't lower yourself. You're you're <laughs> really good. And um, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, and this Pete Bernie, so you wrote, Bernie Sanders is finally ending his presidential campaign today. This is not surprising. For political strategists come pundits like myself, who are disastrously incorrect in our 2016 general election projections, there are a lot of lessons to be learned about how we could be so certain and yet so wrong. I will write you a dissertation on it someday. But one of the main takeaways was, don't believe your own bullshit. Bernie Sanders believed his own bullshit. And today, a campaign that he and his supporters are so certain was going to end in the White House and upend the political power structures has ended in a defeat much more thorough and resounding than the one that was delivered to his movement by Hillary Clinton the last time around. This piece spoke to me a million different ways because in the days since Bernie has left the election, it's been the Democrats plotted against him, blah, 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 blah. And I've been saying over and over to people I know who like Bernie, I'm like, number one, you can never depend on young people voting for you as the basis of you winning an election because young people just don't turn out. And number two, if you hold fast, to your positions and don't budge off them at all, at all, 0%, you cannot win an election. There's my little vent. What made you write this? I wrote it because, again, I, I, I'm always trying to find things where, you know, something in my experience, uh, I feel like can shed a little bit of light on something that's happening, right? And, and in 2016, in the general election in particular, uh, I, I just was so certain that Hillary was going to be Trump that I'd never really even 
considered like the alternative uh, or and or I never really considered why the alternative might happen and what Hillary and sort of her, her you know, associated allies, which I guess I was at the time, could do to prevent it from happening. And, and I think that, you know, lack of, of consideration of things outside of my own perspective, you know, blinded me, but also pretty much everybody that supported Hillary, not everybody, but, but a lot of the prominent political strategists and pundits to, to why Trump won. And, you know, a big part of that is we just had this narrative in our head based on what had happened in the recent past of Donald Trump can't win because, you know, demographics aren't destiny. There aren't enough, you know, white people left anymore. And, you know, he's such a boob and he's such a moron. It's just, you know, it's outside the norms of what the country has done historically. It's not there's no path for him. And. I saw that exact same mindset with Bernie's people after he won Nevada. That's when this clicked for me. He won this big victory in Nevada. And instead of taking that moment, there's a lot of nasty things you can say about Trump. He's not an ideologue, right? I mean, Trump was willing to do whatever it took to win. He changed positions, changed what he said. Bernie did not take the opportunity after Nevada to give an olive branch out to all the other candidates. He did not even nudge an inch on his, you know, democratic socialist beliefs when he was asked about Castro. He wouldn't even just say Castro was a bad guy. Couldn't bring himself to say it, right? He, he just was so certain that he was going to win because of his BS narrative, which is I'm going to create this huge surge of turnout of people who are upset with the establishment, upset with the status quo. It's going to be young people mostly, but also disaffected voters. And that actually hadn't happened. It hadn't happened in any of the first three states. Then he goes to South Carolina and he gets slaughtered by Biden. And he gives a speech that's the same thing that says we're going to win because we're going to create this massive surge of turnout. And it's, and it's like, well, that was never happening. It was never coming. But but Bernie and his team were so certain that it was. They're so certain that what worked for Obama in 08 and what worked for Trump in 16 was going to work for him. But after four, after or two priors and two caucuses, it was proven that it wasn't going to happen. And yet they still believed it. And, you know, there's this great Glenn Greenwald tweet who's, you know, was one of his biggest fans that night, you know, that was, I don't have it in front of me, but basically saying that the establishment and the neoliberals and the neocons, their day of reckoning is coming, coming. They might be happy tonight, but we're going to salt the earth with them. And it's just like, these guys just got crushed. And they still didn't recognize why. They still didn't recognize what was keeping Bernie from getting over the hump. And, um, uh, you know, then you know, it was only three days later that the, the campaign was basically over after, after Biden slaughtered him on Super Tuesday. It was actually, it's very unique. It was, I kept thinking, you just ran a shitty campaign with not, with not a great candidate. It's, it's, it just doesn't seem as complicated as you guys are making it. You ran a bad campaign yeah. and you didn't have a great candidate. I mean, they had an interesting candidate, right? Uh, a, sure. a unique candidate. But yeah, they, they didn't have a candidate that was malleable enough for a presidential election. Look, there's something to be said for being steadfast, right? Like, I give Bernie all the credit for that, even though I don't agree with him on a lot of things. But, but, but if you want to become the president, you have to be able to build a coalition. <laughs> and, you know, Obama uh, knew that very well and was very skilled at it. And Bernie wasn't. And so, yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed the conspiracy theorists that that replied to me online about this, that, you know, the DNC was out to get him and Obama orchestrated this. And it's just like, I mean, what happened was pretty simple. You know, Biden won South Carolina, the guy in third and the gal in fourth place both endorsed him. And, uh, 
you know, then he <laughs> he went on to crush Bernie three days later with the same coalition that had him win in South Carolina. Black voters, older uh, Latino voters, and you know, white suburbanites. Like that was it. So you have a ton, a ton, a ton of political experience, and there are a lot of things I yeah. want to ask you. Are you concerned that the 2020 election will be conducted fairly? And do you think Joe Biden wins? I don't think that there will be vote rigging. It's not we're not in 1950s Chicago. Uh, Trump is a lot of bad things, but he's not really competent enough to execute a conspiracy on his own. And this has been like the great uh, revelation of the Trump administration. Like things could be a lot worse than they are if Trump was actually any good at putting people in place who are good at executing uh, the crazy ass plans and ideas that he has. Uh, the only competent person he has is Miller, who's done a pretty good job of just really grotesque immigration strategies. But uh, most of the other people in the administration are either incompetent or actually don't even agree with Trump and just pretend to. Uh, you know, it's hard to really see them executing, you know, some sort of conspiratorial uh, vote rigging, you know, system in November. What they could do is a couple of things. One is, you know, the Chinese or the Russians could put their thumb on the scale again. Uh, and, and Trump doesn't really seem that interested. Uh, uh, that's an understatement in doing anything to stop that. Um, number two, you know, I, I think with the virus, I'm very concerned about what the rules are around absentee voting, you know, and uh, I think they can put their thumb on the scale in various states, you know, where they have where there's Republican control on what the rules are around early voting and absentee voting. Um, so, you know, to make it that will make it harder for you know, people in the, uh, uh, you know, people in the city, you know, uh, to vote, make it harder for people of color to vote, make it harder for younger people on college campuses to vote if they're on college campuses in the fall. I think that they can do, you know, things like that. But, but a wholesale voter fraud thing is, you know, something out of the movies that's not going to happen. What do you think about Biden? I think that the Democrats, in a weird way, had a very big field. And and part of the reason why it took so long for anyone to consolidate around Biden is because every candidate felt like they had weaknesses. Like there was not a candidate that the Democratic base more than anything wants to beat Donald Trump. I, not everybody, but but a plurality, the preponderance of the voters, that's the most important thing. And if there was somebody that looked like they had they were the clear answer for that, that person would have won. You know, Mayor Pete won early, but people are like, ah, he's gay, he's young, he's a mayor of a mid-sized town. You know, Warren, they were worried that it was Hillary 2.0, whether that was fair or sexist or not. That's what people were worried about. Bernie, so extreme. You know, none of the other candidates. I always want, I was always surprising to me that Harris didn't take on. She seemed to be the most obvious person to just re-put together the Obama coalition. So anyway, everybody has weaknesses. Biden's weaknesses are clear. I, you know, he he definitely has lost a step, right? I mean, he doesn't have his fastball. I, I think that he, um, you know, what the Bernie people and the Trump people say about, you know, whether he's sundowning or whatever is just crazy bullshit um, that they're using to, you know, try to attack and disparage him. But, you know, it's clear that he's not, you know, the same Biden that was, you know, throwing punches at, at Paul Ryan eight years ago. I, I think that the thing he's got going for him, there are three groups of voters who matter this November. Black and young voters who didn't show up last time, moderates who stayed at home, you know, who were Mitt Romney voters who didn't like Trump, and they either voted for Gary Johnson or Evan McMullen or they wrote somebody in, uh, uh, and Obama-Trump working-class white voters. Those are the only three categories of voters that matter. Biden has an appeal to all. 
you know, yeah. by, and so I think that is the thing that is Biden's best case. Like you would have to think he'd do better than Hillary among working class rights. You'd have to think you'd do better than Hillary among former Republicans like me who are sick of the party. You'd have to think he'd do at least a little bit better than Hillary among African-American voters, maybe not young voters. If he can just tick up just a little bit in all three of those categories, he, he wins in a landslide. So, you know, the question is what the atmospherics around the, around the election are and his campaign are. But, but that, that's the, that, that is the thing that makes me feel the best about him, though I'm not going to get out on a limb and say, you know, he's got this thing locked up or anything, of course. Wait, so you worked in communications for a long time. And I always I, I have this thing with Biden that I just if I were him, I would run on over and over again, which is when I'm president, you won't have to think about me every day. I'm not going to dominate your thoughts. I'm not going to tweet a thousand times a day. I'm not going to bash people from the other party. I'm just going to be your president. Am I being simplistic? And is that not the kind of thing that wins an election? Um, I don't know if that is an explicit thing. I, mean, I think Biden can say it, of course. It's certainly not the, th- you know, it can't be the central you know, bumper sticker that you have for Biden, which is you're not going to hear about me, uh, <laughs> though some people might like that. Um, uh, here's the thing. I, what I, I wrote about this, I called it the Biden silent majority, right? Over all these years, they said the silent majority were these kind of Trump voters, right? That they weren't, didn't feel respected by either party. Now I feel like there's a different silent majority, which is kind of just work people who have a job that live in the suburbs that are just sick of shit and they're sick of Trump. And, you know, they may not agree with every um, every policy that, you know, the Democratic uh, uh, leaders are putting forth. But they're really just they're just sick of this and they're not going to go to Biden rallies and they're not going to tweet about him all the time or Facebook about him all the time. And, you know, he's not going to have this cult of personality like Obama and Trump did, but they're just going to vote for him because they're sick of it. And, and so as a strategic matter, uh, I do. I think that you're right. I mean, I think that that is um, that there is a majority there. Uh, in the electorate, um, if Biden can get to them. Uh, as a messaging matter, he's got to figure out a way to balance that with also speak to the very real concerns of, you know, working class and uh, working class people, both white and black working class people, that he, he's going to need to either flip back from Trump in the former case or, or turn out better than they did last time in the latter case. And I, and I think that a lot of those people are going to be going through a really tough time in the economy in November. And to just say, you know, I'm not going to be around. <laughs> You're not going to have to worry about me. I, I think a lot of those working class voters are like, I actually need somebody that's going to help me out right now. Like we're in, you know, this, um, I need somebody that's going to care about my interests, uh, not somebody that's going to be, you know, shit posting at, at cable news. Um, right. So uh, in that case, I think he's got to sort of balance, you know, how he's speaking to that audience with how he's speaking to kind of a suburban, more stable, econo- economically stable audience that, that, that probably that agrees with exactly what you said. When you were working for uh, for Jeb Bush's campaign and yeah. Trump is just mocking him and mocking him. Yeah. And and I never I was never a Bush fan, but I actually started feeling bad for Jeb Bush because it just seemed like if nothing else. And you obviously know him and I don't. He seemed like a dignified and decent human being and the incessant ridiculing and meanness of it all. And I wonder if if you look back and you think. There was a way we could have handled this had we known then what we knew now. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just want to say first, Jeb is the best person I've ever worked for as a person, as a human. Uh, he's such a good person. And um, uh, so your assessment of that is, is accurate. And he handled what was a really horrific situation, not just getting ridiculed by Trump, but just kind of being embarrassed electorally after your brother and father have been president. 
with just an unbelievable amount of grace. I mean, I've worked with people who lost elections where the stakes were much lower, where the light was much dimmer of <laughs> and and handled it much more poorly. So um, I, I will give him credit for the rest of my life for that. As far as strategically, uh, I'd say two things. One, Jeb himself, this was not, he was his dad. You know, he wasn't his mom. W had more of this Barbara, you know, kind of this brash, you know, one-liner ability to uh, get into, um, ability to connect, uh, I think, on an emotional level. W, I think, could have handled Trump much better on the debate stage. I mean, there were some days I just kind of wanted to, like, wear a Jeb mask and go on the debate stage myself and <laughs> uh, and shit on Trump. And uh, because it's just, you know, more in my nature to shit talk than it was in Jeb's. Um so I, I don't think there's anything, you know, there was no magic Hollywood trainer we could have hired that would have made Jeb able to just go toe to toe with Trump in an insult war. It just wasn't in his in his makeup, wasn't in his condition. Uh, you know, it's just like I you can't I can't become a bodybuilder. Like it's just not in my physical makeup. Um as far as the campaign, I think in retrospect the mistake we made was not recognizing early enough Trump's durability. And, and this goes back to believing your own bullshit. Uh, you know, I, I think we didn't consider enough alternate p- possibilities. Um, and I think we looked back at the last election and saw a lot of candidates like Trump, Herman Cain, that like they had a big moment, and then they went away. And Michelle Bachman had a big moment, and then she went away. And we thought that was going to happen with Trump. And so it's like, why get into a pissing match with a guy that's going to probably be back to on The Apprentice in two months? You know, that was our thinking. In retrospect, you know, I think obviously the campaign and the super PAC with ads, you know, should have been just annihilating Trump from day one and trying to keep him from taking off. Uh, would that have worked? I, I really don't think so. I, I think Trump, um, as I said earlier, just kind of really uh, was in touch with the id of the, you know, grievance laden uh, base voter in the party. And I, I don't know that they would have cared, um, about all of the, you know, dirt we would have put out there, but it was worth a try and we didn't do it. I had Joe Walsh on this podcast recently. Joe Walsh, who ran oh, yeah. in the prime, uh, you know, ran for a while for the yeah. nomination. He said to me something I found really interesting, which is he said, I am guaranteeing you Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. They don't want Trump to win reelection. That a lot of these people don't want Trump to win re-election. Number one, because it opens up the presidential field in four years. Number two, they don't really like Trump, but they're they're afraid of Trump. Is that is that overly simplistic? Do you think most of these uh, elected officials in the GOP actually do want him to win again, or do you think most of them secretly are like, Ugh, can we just get rid of this guy? I think that Joe's assessment was definitely right in 2017. Um, you know, I, I think that pretty much everybody in the Senate hated. Trump, with like three exceptions, um, in 2017 when he first got in there. Uh, I think that there is, I, I think Joe might underestimate the Stockholm syndrome that's going on. And, and I think that a lot of these guys, if you look at Marco, just look at Marco's Twitter feed. Like Marco's Twitter feed is not staff run. Like that's him. Yeah. And he is just, he's just bitter. He's bitter at the media. He's bitter at the left. And for whatever reason, he should be better Donald Trump, right? Um, you know, I think that if he could kind of step away from everything and look at what happened uh, to, to him in the primary and look at what has happened since, uh, uh, he might be able to have the clarity to see that, that Trump is the problem. But I, I, as of now, I think he's decided that the media and the left are the problem. So I, I don't, um, uh, you know, I mean, all these guys are ambitious. So there's this sort of feeling of, well, can I run? But, but, 
you know, they're all, all of them that want to, Trump can't run again. So none of them can run for president again until 2024 anyway. So I, I guess I think I disagree with Joe. There might be a couple of them that still secretly harbor a loathing for Trump. Um, but I think a lot of them have kind of gone, gone native. The one who's disappointed me the most, weirdly, is uh, Rona McDaniel. Lindsay. The, it, no, Rona McDaniel, the GOP chairwoman. She's Mitt Romney's <laughs> niece. And this guy keeps mocking her. Him. That's your uncle. Do you ever speak? Like, do you? I, I could not understand. I, I can never, of all the people, understand. As he, Mitt Romney announced he's quarantined, Trump cheers the news. Your niece, Mitt Romney's niece, is hitting the GOP. Nothing? Not a word? Like, you're just okay with it? I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand it. Yeah. One, one funny Rana uh, uh, anecdote, and then my worst. Uh, the Rana anecdote is I was on John Lovett's podcast, Love It or Leave It, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and, and I made fun of her for uh, changing her name. Uh, oh, yeah. And somebody, somebody clipped it sent it to her and she called my business partners credit to attack me over over this and be like why is it you know it's so me so like she is very sensitive to all this and, and it's crazy i, I just again I, it's hard to know I, I think that you are just you get in this bunker where you cannot see clearly outside of it and i think that my guess is like a lot of people in trump world like rana has people in her life that say to her what are you doing what are you doing and and she actually just gets mad at them you know, um, uh, uh, David Frum has written, you know, very well about this, like uh, that there's this sort of psychological thing for people who get caught up in scams. And, and if their friends tell them that they think they're caught up in a scam, they, they don't uh, even even once they're out of the scam, they still are mad at them because they were yeah. the ones who were you know, telling them they're an idiot. And I, and I think there's this with Rana. Uh, my most disappointing is Lindsey Graham. And I, I have to tell you, Lindsey endorsed Jeb. I spent a number of nights just drinking whiskey with Lindsey Graham late into the night. And he was, he hated Donald Trump more in his little pinky than I did my whole body. I mean, I'm about as anti-Trump as you could be, but the stuff Lindsey would say just about how disgusting of a human and how racist and how horrible and how much of an idiot he is. uh, It just, I can't even understand. And I guess I I can understand it, but I just, it just so saddens me um that he has made How this change and then uh yeah these guys everybody wants so so new york guys right they're they're you know um money is what drives them right la your people down in la fame right in dc man what drives all these people the pathology for everybody is is access is wanting to feel like you're the person you're the, you're in the room you know, these guys love nothing more than, you know, talking to their friends from home about how they're with Trump on the plane when he said this or that. Right. It's just that like, like he is he's just intoxicated by this uh, uh, proximity to power or having power sometimes. But if, if short of that proximity to power and it's as simple as that. And I mean, uh, you would have thought that the like McDaniel with her uh, like Rana with her uncle you know, Lindsey and McCain were like best friends, right? And Trump still insults McCain posthumously, you know? And um, anyway, it's just, it's really, it's sad and disappointing and all that. You know what the weird thing, I just want to say the weird thing about it is um, for me, I, so I covered Major League Baseball for a long time at Sports Illustrated. I've written about famous athletes. I've been around famous people, blah, 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 blah. 
And it's, after a while, as you get older, at least for me and most of the people I know, like when you were 22, it was cool to brag to your friends that you're hanging out with whoever. And by the time you're in your mid thirties, who gives a shit? Like who gives a shit? Like, why is that? Who gives a shit? There's so many more important things in life than flying on Air Force One with Donald Trump or even Barack Obama or whoever. I just, I will never understand the allure of that sort of thing um, as you get older in life. Like, who gives a shit? Why do they care? I don't get it. I've literally gone the other way, man. I'm just like, I don't even, I, if I'm in a room with, with you right. know, a bunch of senators, I'd rather be in the corner talking to whoever else so yeah i I hear you but but it is it's intoxicating for certain people and that is that it's the driving thing for a lot of folks in dc it just is let me ask you a final thing do you think um yeah 20 years from now 10 years from now are we looking back at this as the change in democracy and we're no longer a democracy and that was the moment blah 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 are we looking back at it as an ugly period in america and we straighten ourselves out I think it's getting worse before it gets better. I don't, I don't know about the end of democracy, but, um, boy, I, I, the animating features in, uh, in the Republican party, the animating elements are really dark right now. And it's just, it's hard to, uh, I just look at this virus, right? Like one of the things, if you asked me this six months ago, I might have said to you, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but you know, maybe we'll be shaken out of this by something like 9-11 where something really bad will happen and it'll kind of reprioritize things for people. That's happened, right? I mean, this, this, this pandemic ha- has brought just a level of, of, of economic despair and human despair on a scale of nothing that we've seen in, in a decade or more. And, and yet still, Huge elements of the Republican Party are more uh, driven and more animated by wanting to embarrass the left and embarrass the elites and, you know, stick it, stick their finger in the eye of Nancy Pelosi than they are by, you know, wanting us to kind of unite as a nation and solve this problem. So I I just don't know. And I I, I do worry that that is that not in exactly the same way, not necessarily in as malicious of a way, but I do worry that the that there are illiberal and undemocratic elements of the left that are, um, I think, on the rise um, in the country. And so, uh, yeah, I don't I, I, I eventually the rubber band snaps. Right. If you have this sort of polarization, like we felt like this is as polar, polarized as we're ever going to get for 10 years now, you know, whatever, since Bush Kerry, uh, since, mm-hmm. or, you know, I guess since Bush Gore uh, and and maybe. Eventually it snaps and, and kind of something else can rise. But, uh, but boy, I, I think that it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I'll tell you why I was naive. I, um, I thought what was going to happen, like I mentioned Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh and I, yeah. I used to, I could not stand that guy on social media and I blocked him and blah, blah, blah. And then somehow or another, it's almost like your enemy's enemy is your friend. And we started DMing and I had him on my podcast. And we sort of share this distaste for Trump. And I kind of like the guy. And yes. someone like yourself, if I saw your resume a decade ago, I was like, oh, this fucker worked for Jeb Bush, John Huntsman, McCain. <laughs> you know, fuck this guy, blah, blah, blah. And I re- now I would take Jeb Bush as my president. If you told me right now Trump would leave and Jeb Bush is a president for the next eight years, I'd be like, done, deal, or any of those guys. Uh, and I felt... Yeah. There would be a bonding, like a merging of people like me and people like you and people like Joe Walsh who would all unite under Donald Trump that, you know, we would come together. It's happened a little bit, but 
but it hasn't happened like I thought it would. And that's a little bum- a bit of a bummer for me. I'm uh, I'm about as pessimistic as they get on this front, so I, I don't have any little shed of, of light or optimism for you <laughs> to rebut that. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it, Tim! This is a bad way to. Uh, Sorry, who's your man. baseball team, Tim? Uh, Redbirds. I grew up in St. Louis. '80s Redbirds were my kind of formative, uh, formative baseball team. Tawazi Smith, your all-time favorite Cardinal. And I liked Tommy Her. Tom Brunansky, oh, yeah. uh, um, who else? Jose Okendo, you know, Willie McGee. I liked Ozzy all right, but you know, all the kids in second grade liked Ozzy, you know, so I'd, I'd like one of the other guys. I feel like my brain works in such a way that I don't know where my car keys are, but I can tell you with great confidence, Tommy Herr remains the only player in major league history to drive in more than a hundred runs while having fewer than 10 home runs in a single season. <laughs> Is that? that true? <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, he was a great player. Shoot, man! And I had a whole page in my baseball card book of of all the Tommy Her cards that I could not have. Uh, I could not have. I couldn't have pulled that one. Well, Tim, seriously, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, art, your writing is great. Uh, love the Clay Travis piece. Forward it on to people. So uh, keep bringing it, man. Keep bringing it. Jeff, thanks so much. People come to the Bulwark, and uh, I, we so appreciate it. It's a lonely place at the Bulwark, uh, full of never-Trump Republicans, but I think we're able to write interestingly because we've got a, the clarity of like having to, getting to be honest about politics because, you know, whatever, we're homeless, right? So um, I, I appreciate that you had me on and uh, would happy to do another time. I want to thank today's guest, Tim Miller, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Tim on Twitter at TimODC and read his work at TheBulwark.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.